Hello. Hey, everybody. Happy Friday. Welcome back. This is Crime, Cults, and Coffee. I'm Bryn. And I'm Kelsey. And we have a long one for you today. <laughs> but first we a will talk... A long one, but a good one. <laughs> yeah. But first we will talk about our coffee review. Oh my gosh. I just... These, these people that are sending us coffee, it's just amazing. I know. You... It's so hard to talk and compare them all because everyone that we've gotten in touch with or everyone that's reached out and sent us stuff has been amazing and it's like it keep it's like how does it keep just being better and better and better so we're today we're reviewing coffee from fable grounds coffee and their website is fablegroundscoffee.com yep their instagram handle is fable grounds coffee and the whole aesthetic of this one is amazing. I th- I think is one of my favorites just because I'm a book lover. Yeah. And this whole entire coffee theme is based around books. Yeah. And to make it even better, it is a women-owned and women-run business, yeah. which is so cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to read a little bit about their about us on their website. In 2019, Caitlin, who is the owner, set out in search for a company that combined two of her favorite things, books and coffee. She was sorely disappointed when she was unable to find a company that truly focused on those two things. This began her journey into the world of coffee. Months of research, experimentation, led to the creation of Fable Grounds Coffee. Thank you, Caitlin, because you made a fellow book lover's dream come true. Yes. And it says she strives to create the best quality, fresh roasted coffee possible for all the fellow book lovers. Oh, well, you did a damn good job, girl. She did. And they're actually located in Maryland, USA. Mm -hmm. There is also, so she has two other women working with her as well. Um, One is a social media manager and one is an artist. um, And they're also women, like we said, which is really cool. Yeah. So I'm going to talk a little bit about, first of all, their aesthetic Yeah. on their Instagram page and their website and Caitlin's personal page. It's beautiful. It's absolutely amazing. It's like, honestly, some of the best aesthetic I've ever seen on Instagram. Yeah. It's so pleasing and they do all these pictures with combinations of the coffee and books and candles. It's really cute. And flowers or plants or fruit and it's just oh it's so nice to look at. I know. So some of the flavors that they have that I was looking at because they sound delicious. Mm-hmm. They have one called a Abraxos, which is a snickerdoodle coffee. What? Yeah. They have let's see a mystery roast, and it's called The Library. Oh, my God. They have a pans patissiere. I don't know how to say that word. It's French. Patissiere. Patissiere. I hope I'm saying it right. <laughs> Sounds right. It, anyway, it's a sticky bun <gasps> coffee. Oh, my God. I'm looking on their website right now, and one is Romance, and it's raspberry chocolate. Yeah. Poison apple is a caramel apple. Oh my god. <laughs> and so on. It's just, they have so many delicious blends. They yeah. have a winter court chocolate covered candy cane. Right. And they have matching, like they have mugs that you can buy. Mm-hmm. They have 
candle coffee bundles that you can buy. How fucking cute is that? Yeah. And then on their merchandise section, um, it's under Shop All on their website, they actually have things, like their merchandise broken up into little sections, and some of them are from, like, books and movies. Like, there's a section for Game of Thrones. Harry Potter. There's a (laughs) Harry Potter section. There's so many. Yeah. It's really cute the way that they decided to put this up on their website. It's super cool. And we are going to be reviewing them a couple times because they sent us a bunch of mini samples. Yeah. So we're going to be doing it a little different than we normally do. They sent us six little sample boxes, which is amazing. And we decided that we were going to do two per um, reviewing episode. So, um, we'll still, you'll still hear from them, like, three more times. Yeah. (laughs) Two more times. We actually decided to do this with multiple other coffee companies as well, or coffee roasters that have sent us things, because we are so grateful, but we are very backed up on coffee (laughs) right now, and we don't want people to have to wait, like, five months for their episode to come out, or the coffee to be sitting for five months. Right, after it's freshly roasted. Yeah, so, so like Kelsey said, we're going to be doubling up on a couple of episodes where we But it'll, it'll all be from places that sent multiple of different coffees. It won't be ever two coffee places, um, two different ones. Right, and we're both going to be tasting both coffees on episodes like this one. Yes. So, do we want to get into the coffee? Yeah! I'm so excited. You want to talk about yours first? Sure. So, what I'm drinking today is called Hades. Shout out to my friend Amanda's cat, Hades. Aww. <laughs> 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 <Aww. laughs> little Hades. <laughs> and it is a black caramel truffle. Oh my god. Flavored coffee. I haven't tried that one yet. <laughs> oh, it's so good. So, let me take a sip and then you can take a sip and we can say what we think. Okay. So. Okay, so this coffee is very smooth. Okay. Very delicious. Okay. I can definitely taste the hint of caramel in it. Mm Mm-hmm. And what I like about it, it's very flavorful, but it's not to a point where it's too much. Okay. And it's not too sweet, but it, you could definitely taste the caramel, but it's not like overboard of caramel. I like that. All right, let me try again. Holy shit. (laughs) It's so good. That is really good. I love it. Oh my god. I I love love it. I say caramel. People are probably going to hate me for that. But I love... Tomato, tomato. (laughs) Holy crap, you can really taste the caramel in it. You can also smell it, too, I I feel. Wow. It's yeah. literally like you drizzled caramel mm-hmm. in it, like a Starbucks. Like, you dribble, you drizzle it. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. That is really good. Yeah. I really, really like it. Okay. I'm just going to come right out and say my coffee bean rating on that one. Uh-huh. I'm going to give it a nine. I agree. Really? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say a nine as well. That was I really, really like it. Good. Holy shit. I feel like, too, when with certain kinds of coffee that are caramel flavored uh-huh. I can only drink so much of it like yeah, I would get but sick no. of, but not this that I feel like I could drink subtle. this yeah I feel like I could definitely drink this every day for a week or more straight <laughs> yeah okay I'm gonna talk about mine now okay it's called fire and blood Ooh. and there's a little dragon on the front yes their packaging 
The labels are so cute. So thank you, Bella. Was yes, the, yeah. Bella's the artist that designs the yeah, labels. Yeah, Bella, you do a very a very nice job. I really like it. It's beautiful. Um, this is a medium roast coffee. So you want to? I'm gonna try it first. Okay. I like this coffee as I don't. I describe coffees that aren't flavored as kind of like a neutral coffee, mm-hmm. and I think this is a good neutral coffee. But I think. I would probably give this one a 7 out of 10 coffee beans. I think it's very good for, like, a daily coffee um, because it doesn't have any flavors and you wouldn't get sick of it. Yeah, it's definitely one, like we've said before, where it's neutral and you can add different creamers to it. it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I like it. I would, like I said, I'd give it a 7. What's your rating? I think think a 7's fair. 7, 7.5, just because it's not... It's a... I don't know. It's like it's not, not it's not just boring. Right. It has like a little zing to it, but right. it's and it's not bitter and very bold. Yeah. So it's not like you can drink you can drink a few cups of this coffee a day. Yeah. Yeah, I think seven's fair. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, Hades, you got a nine. <laughs> <laughs> we love Hades. Yeah. <laughs> so Do you have anything else to add? I I don't think so. I mean Thank you so much, Fable Grounds, for sending us. You'll hear more from us um, in the future episodes, but we are so grateful of you guys um, for sending over so many samples. Yeah, and grateful that you made coffee for the book lovers out there because <laughs> it was much needed. And I know there's a lot of Game of Thrones fans out there. I need to jump on that bandwagon soon. But Same. You need to look at their Game of Thrones themed like section on their website. It is really cool. Yeah. And I don't even watch Game of Thrones. I'm just a huge Harry Potter girl and anyone who knows me knows like I've seen the seen those movies, read those books so many times and I, I can just do it for the rest of my life. Yeah. She really could. <laughs> yeah. Literally there's like I just burped. There's <laughs> there's literally a um Harry Potter marathon on like every week because apparently that's needed. Yeah. And why are you watching? Why are you talking like it's not? (laughs) I don't know. I'm not as big as a fan as you are, I guess. Yeah. Well, my dad gets pretty sick of it. He's like, ah, Harry Potter. He's like, how many times have you seen this fucking shit? And I'm like, (laughs) Dad, you can't get enough of it. I cry every time with Snape every single time, and I've seen the movie how many times? You really do. Yeah. Okay. I love Alan Rickman. Okay. On that note, maybe we should get started. <laughs> yeah. All right. So grab your coffee and have a morning with us. Okay. So today we have a culty episode. Buckle your seatbelts, kids. <laughs> this is a little bit of a longer one, like we mentioned, but it is well worth it. We, and we might split it up depending on how long it takes, but I don't. I don't think we need yeah. to. Yeah. Well, if we had covered every little detail, we would have maybe had to do three or four parts because there this is, is a big so one. much detail. I've always known of this cult, but I never knew to these to this amount of detail. Yeah. That this what happened. Yeah. So this cult is. Dun, dun, dun. The Branch Davidians. You guys will definitely know who they are once we get to the major <laughs> stuff. If yeah. you're like, who the fuck is the Branch Davidians? Oh, you will know. And with every other cult, there's going to be a lot of weird, long-ass names. So <laughs> I'm probably going to fuck them up at some point. They but really like tongue twisters. They really do. So we're going to start out with the history of the cult. This is just kind of how it started and how it got to the point of where um, we're going to talk about like more recent present-day stuff that's mm-hmm. happening. So, this cult is known as the Branch Davidians now, 
but it was previously known as the General Association of Branch Davidian Seventh-day Adventists. <laughs> so they shortened it to Branch Davidians. Mm-hmm. So this actually was a cult that branched off of the General Association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventists, which I said, and it was established by Hotef. So this originally started in 1935 by Victor. Mm -hmm. Hotef wrote a book called The Shepherd's Rod, The 144,000, A Call for Reformation. So that was the title of the book that he wrote. Basic. Again, really long. <laughs> yeah, really. Like, why is it needed? Why not just the shepherd's rod? I know. That's it. Like, they have to have such elaborate names. So this book called for the reform of the Seventh-day Adventist church. It kind of described um, all of his like, beliefs and his teachings and stuff like that. And basically, the statement was that 144,000 followers would form a church, and this is the pure church, and that was, forming this church was a prerequisite for Christ to return to earth. Mm -hmm. So the book kind of just talked about that. This book and his beliefs were actually rejected by the Adventist leaders. They were like, we not want no part of that They're shit. They're like, you're going a little far. <laughs> a little far, Victor. So he embraced the Adventist te teachings of Christ's imminent return. He kept those teachings, like, whenever he decided to branch off. Mm -hmm. And those teachings were that you'd have worship on Sunday, you would have dietary regulations, and pacifism. Okay. Which, I feel like that's most religions. They yeah. have their own little yeah. thing. Yeah. So in 1935, Hotef and his followers settled on land on the western outskirts of Waco, Texas. And if Waco, Texas doesn't ring a bell for you, that's, like, the main thing. That's like literally <laughs> where people are probably like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> that's the light bulb moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he decided to settle in Waco, Texas because the Seventh-day Adventist conference rejected his message, like we said earlier. So he's like, fuck it. I'm just going to make my own little branch mm -hmm. and we're going to settle in Waco. Which, like, okay, good for you. I feel it's like, very ambitious. Yeah, and I feel like when it comes to religion, people should be able to branch off in, in right. a way if they don't agree with certain things, but not take it to the point of a fucking cult. Where they do <laughs> fucked up things. Yeah, yeah, which you guys will see, Hotef wasn't, it, it wasn't hugely part of what he... Originated. Ori yeah, yeah, it kind of it goes kind of a little... It kind of snowballs off yeah. after that. So... He built a compound called the Mount Carmel Center. Oh, my God. We're drinking caramel coffee. Oh, my God. Weird. I went to Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church. <laughs> <laughs> it's all coming together. Um, oh, my God. I'm drinking caramel coffee in a Waco, Texas mug. Holy shit. What the fuck? I didn't even realize Neither it did Waco I. on it. Neither did I. I'm freaked out. I'm freaked, I'm freaked out. out. <laughs> Holy shit. Because we have, if you guys are a fan of Fixer Upper, oh my they God. do their, their show in Waco, Texas. I just grabbed a random mug this Holy morning. Holy shit, my mind is blown Ew, right now. Ew, I'm scared. <laughs> put it down, put it down. <laughs> what if he's like, what if his spirit has come to, ew, to like, ew, ew. recruit me? <laughs> oh my God, please. He's like, you must drink from the Waco cup. It's all coming together. Okay, ew. so the Mount Carmel Center is what he built, and he... He began preparing for the second coming of Jesus. Ew, I'm freaked out. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to keep talking. You can okay, deal with it. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So the group became known as the Davidians, like we had said. And it was originally him and only 37 followers, which was pretty small. Then in 1942, 
he renamed the group to the General Association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventists. So he added the just Davidian in there mm-hmm. of the long name. By 1940, it grew to 64 residents, which was only five years later. And on their little compound in Mount Carmel, they built 10 buildings and they had 375 acres of land. Members were paid for their work and built sewage systems, added electricity, and telephone services, which is pretty advanced for starting basically a commune by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. And I thought that was a little shocking. I mean, I I feel like commune like they literally live in like huts i don't know yeah and i kind of wonder where the money was coming from to pay these workers like how were they getting right. their funding well i did read somewhere that ones that couldn't get paid through the the davidian like their commune yeah they were allowed to go into the city of waco and get paid but then they had to pay double the amount of dues to but like was this money like recycled like were they technically paying themselves to get because you know when you go to church and they collect yeah for the church to like donations yeah were they doing that and then paying the people with the money they gave honestly they probably were because where was that funding coming from i don't know anyway i digress (laughs) i digress (laughs) they worshiped on saturday which is a little variation from what hotev said Um, They practiced vegetarianism, and they had strict rules such as no tobacco, no dancing, and no movies. That sounds boring as shit. Okay, I'm in for the vegetarianism. Me too. (laughs) Me and Bryn are... Well, okay, I can't even call myself a vegetarian anymore. I eat chicken now, but... I'm a vegetarian. Yeah. I hadn't... I haven't eaten other things other than chicken in years. That's okay, Kels. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so they turned... They actually made their own printing press as well. Um, in Mount Carmel to distribute Hotef's teachings. So they still mm-hmm. had him as, like, the leader. Mm-hmm. What? That's where it gets kind of iffy yeah, for I know. me. Like, I know. you're printing your own work. And they literally handed them, like, to everybody. They distributed them really far and wide. And, yeah, they mm. they kind of put him on a high pedestal, Hotef. I get it. If you're, like, printing to disperse and get, like, the word out there about your religion. But if you're forming your own press to have your people only read that kind of stuff. Like, I wonder if they were kind of, you know how... Like brainwashing them? Yeah. Yeah. Like, different countries, they print their own stuff for kids to, like... I think it's North Korea who does it. Yeah, to... They basically, like... They teach them what they want to teach. Yeah. Like, I wonder if it was the same kind of thing. Or if I'm just overthinking it. I don't know. So, in 1955, which was, what, 20 years after Hotef decided to go to Mount Carmel and build this commune, he actually died, and his wife, Florence, became the leader of the Davidians. And at this time, there was another follower of Hotef. His name was Benjamin Roden, um, and he kind of went off on his own and called himself the Branch, um, and he called the Davidians to come to the Mount Carmel Center to hear his message. So at this time, it was kind of like Florence, the wife of Hotef, and Benjamin trying to almost fight for power or get more followers to come to one side versus the other. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the most significant group that emerged after Hotef died, um, this branch group. And yeah. that's eventually what snowballs into what you, what is today. Yeah. So now we're going to move on to Mount Carmel, Carmel, which was the headquarters 
as we mentioned. And we're going to kind of go through the history of that and how it evolved into what it did and who took over and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, 1957, Florence Hotef sold the Old Mount Carmel Center and purchased 941 acres near Elk, Texas, because Waco was growing too close to the Mount Carmel Center. Yeah, they were, like, kind of outgrowing them. Yeah. And this was 13 miles northwest of Waco, and they named it the new Mount Carmel Center. Yes. So, 1959, the leaders called on new followers from California, Wyoming, and Canada, mostly, and people sold their farms and houses in order to move to Mount Carmel. Like, what did they do to convince them, though? It was their religion. That's what they believed in. like, how did they convert so many people? Because they're a cult. I know. It's just shocking to me. I feel like there's a definite difference, and I'm sorry if anyone's listening who's, like, very, very religious. There's being religious and there's extremists and I feel like when you get to the level of extremists that's when or like the brainwashing of religion that's when cults Mm -hmm. start like there's like definite fine line yeah and it didn't start out very culty it kind of snowballed into the cult effect yeah so 900 people gathered there on April 18th to the 22nd in 1959 And Florence had made a prophecy of apocalyptic events on or near April 22nd, 1959. These failed to come true. (laughs) And then hope began to fade within the group. So the following went down. Because they were basically like, okay, you're full of shit. Yeah, she's like, I have this vision that there's an apocalypse. So they all went and waited and nothing happened. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what did they want to happen? Like, everyone would, like, spontaneously combust. I know, right? I don't know. Yeah. So she dissolved the General Association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventists (laughs) in 1962. And she sold everything except... 77.86 acres of the new Mount Caramel property. And after this prophecy did not come true, Ben Roden made an announcement that he was the sign the Davidians were searching for, and he was like, oh, I'm the new prophet. He's like, oh, you came here to see a prophecy? That's me. I'm Ben Roden. (laughs) Look at me. (laughs) I'm going to start my own thing. Yeah. (laughs) And he started, like, dancing and doing spirit fingers and stuff. Yeah. (laughs) So, 1962, Rodin took over New Mount Carmel. He wanted to purchase the remaining 77.86 acres that Florence still owned, and he embraced Hotef's message about the purified church. Mm -hmm. His main belief or teaching was the importance of restoring the state of Israel, and this was in course of, in preparation for the Christ's return to earth. He's like, I I need to do this for Jesus to come back. Yeah. Yeah. And he visited Israel and established small communities there. I wonder, this is so messed up, I wonder what they thought, like, when, like, his, like, thing didn't work out and the people in Israel, like, weren't notified. They're like, what's going on here? (laughs) Like, he just, like, left. (laughs) They're like, he came, he conquered, he left. (laughs) So, February 27th, 1973... The new Mount Carmel was sold to Benjamin Rodin, Lois Rodin, and their son George Rodin, trustees for the General Association of Branch Davidian Seventh Day Adventists. Mm-hmm. And that was a quote. And it was then just referred to as Mount Carmel. So we're not saying new Mount Carmel anymore. Just, just Mount, Mount Carmel. Carmel. In 1978, Benjamin died and his wife Lois took over as the prophet. So they're basically like, 
it's like wearing a hat and you could just pass it on to the next person. Yeah, oh, I'm married, yeah. so she's the new You're prophet. You're the prophet, yeah. <laughs> and some members were torn between allegiance to Lois or to their son George because who's to say, right? she's the prophet, why not George? Yeah. And Lois's teachings were centered around the female character of the Holy Spirit, spirit, I'm sorry, and ordination for women. So she was basically just like... Just like feminist, almost. Women. Yeah. Women are fucking badass. Yup. Yeah. Go Lois. And 1981, a man named Vernon Howell, who you people will... He's the main player. Yeah, yeah. You guys are like, wait, Waco... I've never heard of these fucking people. Oh, well, this is why. He's the main player. We just had to give you the background. Yeah, so a man named Vernon Howell, later known as David Koresh, (sighs) came to Mount Carmel, Carmel, and studied biblical prophecy under Lois. And in 1985, George Roden, which was the son of Ben and Lois, assumed leadership of the Branch Davidians. So basically he's, like, taken control. And yeah, they were like, like, this we is don't, mine. We don't listen to Lois anymore. Yeah. We listen to George. Yeah. So, Vernon Howell. And he's also known as David Koresh because later he changes his name to that. Um, so I'm just going to give you a background on him. Most of the time you'll know him as David. We'll say David. Yeah. And everyone who knows about Waco knows him as David yeah. Koresh. Yeah, his name was just previously Vernon. We'll talk about why he changed his name, though. Yeah. So, he was born in Vernon Wayne... He was born as Vernon Wayne Howell on August 17th, 1959 in Houston, Texas. His mom was Bonnie Sue Clark, and she was a single mother and had him when she was only 14. Aww. Yeah. His father left him for another girl before Vernon was... Or David um, was actually born. And in 1963... Fucking douche. I know. Like, what an asshole. Especially, like... When the mom's a 14-year-old woman, you don't think you need to help her? You're just going to move on to the next girl? Well, in 1963, she was obviously troubled, and when he was four years old, she his mother ended up leaving with her boyfriend and had him live with his grandmother. Mm. So, um, kind of a, a, a strange upbringing for him. Also, like, when you think about it, though, I mean, obviously she should have taken, like, should have taken that responsibility as being his mom. Mm-hmm. But when she up and left, she was 18. Right. She didn't, you know, she was a like kid running still. away with her boyfriend. Yeah, she, she was still a kid. Yeah. She ended up returning, um, Vernon's mother ended up returning when he, he was seven years old. He described his early childhood as lonely, which, like, mm-hmm. I don't feel bad for him because of what he did, but that's pretty sad. Especially when he's like a little kid and he's not the person he became yet. Yeah, you know? he's innocent. Yeah. He had dyslexia, and he was put in special education classes. Mm-mm. He ended up dropping out of Garland High School in his junior year. He made it pretty far, though. Yeah. At 19, he had a relationship with a 15-year-old girl, and she ended up becoming pregnant. Uh. Yeah. Which we never... You never hear about that kid. No. Since. Like... I wonder where he's at. He, she. Yeah, and if they even know that that's their dad. I know. You know? Or if they're just... Their mom's like, ha, we are I'm not never telling you. Telling you. <laughs> You'll understand later. <laughs> um, he ended up becoming a born-again Christian after he had gotten his wife pregnant. Or the, the girl pregnant, I'm sorry, not his wife. And he was in the Southern Baptist Church and then joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So that's kind of how he got involved. Yeah, I also heard that the Seventh-day Adventist Church, his mom was part of. So that's kind of oh. how he... Like, switch. Sweat, yeah. yeah. He became infatuated with the pastor's daughter. Ugh. 
bad move, Vernon. Eventually, he was expelled from the congregation. Yeah. No yeah. shit. I know. Not a good not a good look. Then, now it's okay. Now we're caught up to being in 1981. And this is when he moved to Waco, Texas to join the Branch Davidians. So that's kind of how he came into the picture. Mm-hmm. He played guitar and sang in services at the Mount Carmel Center. Um, in 1983, he began claiming that he was the prophet and began teaching his own message called the serpent's root. I like how any old person can just be like, I'm, I'm the, the prophet. prophet. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> like that. It's a me. I'm Mario. <laughs> so strange. Like this part grosses me out to no extent. I- <laughs> so she was a kooky kook. She was a kook. <laughs> Um, Koresh, David Koresh, had an affair with Lois Roden, who, if you remember, Lois was a, the leader of this church for a little bit of time, her husband. The girl power away. prophet. Yeah, the girl power prophet. He was in his late 20s, and she was in her late 60s. Cougar. Cougar. Rawr. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, this is the part that, like, actually made me laugh. He wanted a child with her and claimed that it would be the chosen one. She's in her late 60s. That poor woman. The thing that I think of is, like, how can he claim that when everybody knows Harry Potter was the chosen one? Stop. He was! (laughs) Bringing it back around to Harry Potter. (laughs) David Koresh. How? You are not I guess because Harry Potter didn't exist. Probably. But... Probably the explanation. The chosen yeah. one. <laughs> like that's, I don't know. Yeah. So he wanted to have a baby with his uh, 60-year-old lover. But she said, no, I'm not Could getting pregnant. Could she even bear children at that point? No! She definitely went through menopause Her already. Her womb was dry by then. <laughs> like, that's like, I don't know. I guess the child would be the chosen one if she was able to give birth in her 60s, I know, right? right? That would be a something. So eventually... He ended up marrying Rachel Jones and claiming that God instructed him to do it. So she's like the the main first wife. <laughs> well, the only wife he actually like officially married. Yes, I guess. yeah, yeah. Rachel Jones. Yeah, yeah, poor Rachel. I'm sorry for her. Poor Rachel. So then we're moving on to the shift because as of right now, we know that George was technically in charge. Yeah. But things are going to, well, Lois and somewhat and George, George yeah. were technically in charge, and now there's just going to be a shift of, yeah. Who's the prophet? Because then, Guess da- who? well, David, or also Vernon, remember, comes in and he's like, I'm the prophet, while Lois and George are still in charge. So yeah. they're like, wait. Yeah. So, 1984, a group of Branch Davidians shifted their allegiance from George, which was Lois's son, to David Koresh. A.K.A. Vernon, but now we'll just refer refer to him as David, (laughs) so you don't get confused. Yeah. So, George said he had the support of the majority of the group, and Koresh and his followers were forced off the property at gunpoint. So, he's basically like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Yeah. So, Koresh and around 25 followers set up camp in Palestine, Texas, which is 90 miles or 140 kilometers from Waco. And they lived in buses and tents for the next two years. Yikes. Yeah. Um, I had read that they said it was, like, harsh conditions that they were living in. I bet. Yeah. And during this time, Koresh began recruiting followers 
from California, the UK, Australia, and Israel. So he was, like, expanding his pretty bold. reach. Yeah. yeah. In 1986, Lois died, and her son George fully took over as prophet and leader. And by then, Koresh now had the following of the majority of the Branch Davidian community. So even though he wasn't in that compound... Yeah. He had he was like, a lot more followers. Come to the dark side. Yeah. And they followed him. Yeah. He reached out his, like, scrawny little fingers and just <laughs> called them in. Come with me. So, late 1987, George Roden challenged Dave Koresh to a contest <laughs> to raise the dead. That's just, like, why? Like, I challenge you. <laughs> I challenge you to exhume a body. This is, like, like basically why? Voldemort and Harry Potter, right? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> it's come full circle again. <laughs> this is where they got the storyline of Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, J.K. JK Rowling, Rowling did not. No. <laughs> did not. She's a genius. Yeah. So, but, like, a contest to raise the dead. You could come so up weird. with a more, con- like, a contest that's more likely to right. happen. Like, pick up this giant boulder. <laughs> yeah. No, they had, to, and they had to exhume a dead person. Yeah, or, like, make a prophecy, and if it comes true, you're obviously legit. Right, but then they'd both be wrong, and then, like... <laughs> <laughs> They'd move on. The next prophet would raise his hand and be like, hey, I'm here. (laughs) So, uh, in order to do this contest, George Roden was like, oh, I'm going to exhume a corpse (laughs) and demonstrate my spiritual supremacy. Like, what? Yeah. And Koresh went to authorities to file charges against Rodin for illegally exhuming a corpse. He's like, oh, I'm gonna get him. That's so funny, though. Yeah. We're like, we agreed to this, like, challenge, and then he, George did it, and Koresh is like, oh, man, I'm gonna tell him. He's like, I'm gonna tell you, be- you dug up a body. You <laughs> fucking weirdo. So, he was actually told he would have to show proof that Rodin actually dug up this body. Mm-hmm. So now we're on to November 3rd, 1987. Koresh returned to the Mount Carmel Center with seven armed (laughs) followers, allegedly so he could get photographic proof of the, like, exhumation of the body. Mm -hmm. He was like, I'll take pictures and, like, be able to... That's my proof? Yeah. So they brought five, two, I don't know how to... I think it's 22. 22, well, it says .223. I think it's 22 caliber. Okay. But then there's a 22 caliber later down, so it doesn't really make sense. I want to just say it like this. Gun I'm not a gun person, no. okay? All right, so he brought five <laughs> .223 caliber semi-automatic rifles. My brother's going to hate us for this. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. <laughs> two 22 caliber rifles, two 12-gauge shotguns, and nearly 400 rounds of ammunition. So Yikes. they were like... That's a little to, excessive. Coming to rumble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And allegedly, they didn't even bring a camera to take these pictures. (laughs) They're like, fuck it, we don't need the camera. Yeah. So, a gunfight broke out, and Rodin suffered a minor gunshot wound, and then Koresh and his followers were charged with attempted murder. But his followers were acquitted, and a mistrial was declared for Koresh, so nothing really came of it. Yeah. They kind of, like, their story they were holding up was they went there to take pictures, and then, like, shit went down. Yeah. Yeah. So, 1989, George Roden actually murdered Wayman Dale Adair. This is, like, a side thing. Yeah. And he killed him with an axe to his head after Adair stated that he, meaning Adair, was the true messiah. So, it was another person, like, me. (laughs) And he's like, no, fuck it. Yeah. I'm gonna kill you with an axe. Yeah. 
So, Rodin was judged insane and sent to a psychiatric hospital in Big Spring, Texas. And he actually owed thousands in unpaid taxes on Mount Carmel Center. <laughs> so, Korish and his followers, they basically were like, seize the day, we're taking this opportunity. Yeah, they're like, we didn't have to kill him. Yeah. And they raised money and reclaimed the property. <laughs> so, that's how they took over Mount Carmel Center. Yes. And... They actually discovered that tenants who had rented from Rodin left behind a meth lab. So, Korish reported this to the local police department and asked to have it removed. And I think, like, he was doing this to get on the good side of the law. Yeah, he was like, oh, by the way, they were doing bad things here. Yeah. So, you I can don't trust me. I don't want a meth lab yeah. in the basement of my complex. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is the point where George Rodin is, like, out of the picture now. He's not really in it. Now... It is David Korish, and from he here on out... is the prophet. Yeah, apparently. Of the Branch Davidians. <laughs> so, in May 15th of 1990, Korish, he was actually still legally Vernon Howell, but he then, in 1990, filed a petition to legally change his name to David Korish, and... In quotes, it says, for publicity and business purposes. Like, that was his reasoning. <laughs> like, why? Why David Korish? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, in August, August 28th, 1990, it was granted by a judge, and basically he decided the name David because it simula- symbolized a lineage directly to the biblical King David from whom the new Messiah would descend. Mm-hmm. So he was really familiar with the Bible, so he was like, okay, I have to pick a name that, like, really, really makes me look like I'm the Messiah. And he wanted to seem like he, like, came from that line. Yeah, which is really strange. Yeah. Like, just because you change your name doesn't mean you're part of that right. <laughs> that lineage. So, David comes from the from King David in the Bible, and Korish is the biblical name for Cyrus the Great, who was a Persian king who was named a messiah for freeing the Jews during the Babylonian captivity. So, basically, from both ends of his first and last name, he's king. the messiah. Yeah. It's both coming from a king. Yeah. King David and the Persian king. And fun fact... Later down the road, he actually named his son Cyrus. I did know that. Yeah. Yeah. How crazy. Yeah. So weird. He's like, you shall be next. I know. So at some point, Korish set up the Davidic kingdom in Jerusalem, believing that he would be a martyr in Israel. (laughs) That's just, I'm just gonna move on. This (laughs) This man needed help. Really, he did. He was very delusional and obviously had, like, some sort of form of mental illness. And it, like, kept going. Like, I think his followers just kept going to his head. Yeah. By 1991, he was convinced his martyrdom would be in the U.S. So that's, like, kind of where he stayed. Um, this is a quote. He said the prophecies of Daniel would be fulfilled in Waco and that Mount Carmel Center was the Davidic kingdom. So he, like, self-appointed the martyrdom to be in... Mount Carmel in mm-hmm. Waco, and he was the self-appointed prophet. I wonder if, like, part of him in the back of his mind is like, I put way too much money into this place. I can't fuck up now. <laughs> like, I, like, we need to make this the holy, like, the holy center, because... I just can't even believe that, like, and I get, like, this is what the basis of cults are, but, like, how did people believe that, like, after they knew that he's the one that personally changed his name, and he wasn't, like, from some lineage, and that he basically made, like, the town, like, the Mount Carmel Center be where this is all going to happen. Like, he, this was all self-appointed. Like, how did they not see that? I think because, like, as we discussed in other cult episodes, people who 
join and are sucked into cults, they all have, like, specific traits to them where they either are looking for something, searching for something, they're lost, they don't know who they are, they want something to, like, grasp onto, they have some form of mental illness, or they... Or they were just lied to. Or they're brainwashed. They're completely lied to. Yeah, yeah. That's true. And, I mean, like I said before, like, there's people who are religious people who believe in certain religions, and, like, that obviously is completely fine and completely, like, legitimized, but when you're following someone who's basing something on nothing and, like, just making shit up. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, causing, basically wanting these people to just follow him and everything he says and has no rhyme or reason to it, like, that's when it's a cult. the king, yeah. Yeah. So these were the beliefs, um, now that David Koresh is in power, they believed that an apocalypse was coming, which was kind of, like, what the beliefs were earlier on before he became in charge. He taught that he was the Messiah and that only children born to the Messiah would be sacred as well. So that was his out there to have as many kids as he wanted. Right. And that that right there is, like, when it becomes cult-like. Right. When it becomes a cult. Right. Like, you're not... No religion would tell you to to do that and only this person. You know what I mean? Right, because he was the only person. So because of this belief, he had multiple marriages with women from the Branch Davidian community, and a lot of them were underage. So that was giving him an excuse to be able to take advantage of young girls and children. But meanwhile, the other members were expected to be celibate. Yeah. Which is, like, really fucked up. Yeah. He was subsequently a father to at least 13 children, but some articles say that there could have been, like, up to 20 or more. Oh, my God. Yeah. One article said that he had sex with many of the women as well, not even just, like, got them pregnant, but he had sex with a lot of women, and one of the girls was as young as 10 years old. Mm. That's fucking sick. That's, uh, you're a pedophile. You're not a messiah. You're a pedophile. The doctrine of the House of David, um, led to, quote-unquote, marriages with both married and single women of the Branch Davidians. So that was, like, his doctrine that... Mm -hmm got him to do this. That he created. Yeah. The doctrine was based on a revelation that involved the procreation of 24 children by chosen women in the community, which also targets the women now because they now believe that they're t- they're chosen and that they're going to be part of this huge sacred thing. And ma- he made up the whole thing. It's he said brain- it was a revelation. Yeah, he's brainwashing them. It's not like a polygamy situation where you're going in and choosing to be part yeah. of this. No, they didn't. It's, you're being brainwashed into doing this because you because believe. you joined yeah. it as part of your religion. Yeah. Twenty four children were to serve as the ruling elders over the millennium after the return of Christ. So, like, that's why he said there was a sacred twenty four. Uh huh. Um, women chosen through the doctrine included Michelle Jones, who was underage, and the younger sister of Koresh's legal wife, Rachel, that we had talked about first, which is so fucked up. Which, I mean, not that obviously she probably didn't really even have a say, but how was she okay with that? How were the parents okay with that? They probably weren't. No, well, the parents were part of the church. Yeah, but like... But like... Having the leader... They probably (sighs) thought it was an honor to have the leader have... Hit yeah, their children as wives. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That is probably how it, they It, like, loved brought them. honor to the family. Yeah. So the rest of the Branch Davidians were expected to be celibate. So he was the only one who could have sex. Fucked up. Really fucked up. Yeah. And he wanted to create a new lineage of world leaders. Uh-huh. In 1990... Or 1989, quote, 
He asserted that he was the perfect mate for all female members and confided to the Davidians his intention to create a new lineage of children who he believed would eventually rule the world. And that was a quote from Britannica. I'm gonna throw up. (laughs) Like, that right there, no. This is where it took a turn. (laughs) You have problems. Yeah. Like... First to of put all, yourself above people like yeah, that. Yeah, first of all, you're, like, there is no, like, you can, you're not the perfect mate for all, all the women in your <laughs> cult. And all your children aren't going to rule the world. No. That's just, like, That's truly delusion. what they believed. Though. Yeah. So they lived in seclusion. David Buns, which was a former Davidian, told ABC News in 2018 that they lived the way they did to avoid the world. Quote, One of the things about being a Branch Davidian was you're supposed to separate yourself from the world. The world is the sins, the the desires of the world, and you're supposed to be spiritual. That's cutting them off from everything so they do not see how you're, like, how normal people live. Yeah. They only see the cult. Yeah. And so you can, like, further brainwash them. Yeah. Koresh believed in the seven seals from the Bible's books of Revelation. (laughs) This part kills me. Yeah. Basically, these seals were seen in a vision by a person in the Bible, and it talked about the second coming of Christ, which a lot of religions believe in. Yeah. Christ coming back. And a start of an apocalypse. So, basically, they said catastrophic events were what was going to lead to the final judgment. Mm -hmm. And he claimed that he could see the scroll or book with these seals and that he could speak to God. I'm just going to say, like... The people, even up until the most recent years before, the mo- I'll just say the most recent years of the Branch Davidians, these people truly thought that their minister or whatever they considered David Koresh to be was the only person that could see these seals mm-hmm. and that he would save them. And that's brainwashing. Completely. That's like... It's terrifying. You're not... You're not even... You have no function of your own mind at that point. No, they really think that they have to do this in order to be saved. You're like a little robot at that point. Yeah. And he encouraged his followers to think of themselves as, quote, students of the Seven Seals rather than Branch Davidians. Ugh. You need to watch the documentaries that we're going to talk about later because I started one and it was crazy. Yeah. So now we're on to Waco. I still cannot get over that you have a Waco mug. <laughs> I know. That is I'm, so fucking weird. All of a sudden, the name David is being whispered in my ear. Stop, really? No. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> well, I don't know. So, Waco is... We had to obviously preempt with all of that in order to get to this, but this is what everyone knows about this cult and yeah. might be the only thing you did know about this cult until you listen to that's this. this is this part that we're about to talk about is the only part i knew yeah yeah like the whole big shebang yeah so february 28th 1993 the united states bureau of alcohol tobacco and firearms the atf for short which we'll refer to it as, from this point on mm-hmm. attempted to use a search warrant at the davidians compound for possession of illegal arms and alleged alleged sexual abuse charges so, they believed that Koresh was possibly operating a meth lab. Which he was like, I thought I turned them in. <laughs> He's like, I turned them in so I could start my own. <laughs> in 1992, there was actually a six-month investigation of sexual abuse allegations by the Texas Child Protection Services, Ugh. but it failed to turn up any evidence. That sucks. Yeah, and I read that 
basically they might have done this by appointing fake husbands to other women so they didn't know that oh. David was the husband the only husband of to all, all of them, them. Oh yeah my God, that's so fucked up yeah so allegations came from detractors and ex-members that like woke the fuck up and were like wow I- this is a cult and this person's full of shit yeah and the launching of a retail gun business also drew attention from legal authorities <laughs> And they're like, oh, we're going to sell guns. And the, yeah, the authorities were like, we're not going to let that happen. Yeah, they were like, you're in a compound <laughs> with tons of children and women, and but they're probably you're selling man- guns. manufacturing the weapons yeah. for them, yeah. So they believed the community had nearly 250 weapons, including semi-automatic rifles, assault rifles, shotguns, revolvers, pistols, and hundreds of grenades, which is why oh they were gosh. like, okay, we need to, like, we need to take, take a look in this <laughs> compound. Yeah. <laughs> The cult was actually tipped off by a TV cameraman oh, that right. the um, ATF was coming. Oh, my God. Yeah. What the fuck? Why would you do that? Yeah. Well, because they were out, I guess, they were outside, like, getting ready to, they got a lead, were outside getting ready to film the thing. One of the cult members was like, what's going on? They told <gasps> them, and then they went and told Korish. And, and they could, all like... all of this happened. Yeah. I read, I think they had about 45 minutes to prepare before Are they even got there. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. And you'll know why this is such a big deal in a minute, but, like, oh my god. Yeah. And, yeah, if they hadn't been tipped off, this could have gone completely differently. Yeah. And, I mean, I get how... TV reporters and, like, pe- like media. the media has to do their job. But do it a fucking certain way. That's, like, like the Richard Ramirez ruin. case. Yeah. Do not ruin the investigation. The only... Some of the only leads they had were ruined by being posted on social media. Like, Richard Ramirez was, be able, was able to ditch his shoes, which was one of the only leads they had, because they announced it on the fucking news. Way too early. Yeah. Like, they should have never announced it. Yeah. And that's kind of what's going on here, too. Wow, that's so fucked up. Yeah. So the ATF attempted to breach the compound for approximately two hours until their ammunition ran low, and this turned into a raid of the compound. Wow. Yeah. There ended up being a shootout, and five Davidians and four ATF personnel were killed. The ATF killed were Steve Willis, Robert Williams, Todd McKeehan, and Conway Charles LeBlue. And the Davidians killed were Winston Blake, he was British- um, Peter Gent, he was from Australia, Peter Hipsman, Perry Jones, and Jadine Wendell, and two of them were actually killed, like, two of the Davidians were actually killed by the Branch Davidians, so I don't yeah. know if, like, stray bullets hit them right. by accident or whatnot, but, yeah, two of them weren't actually, weren't killed by ATF, they were killed by some of their own. Another 16 agents were wounded during the raid, and a 911 call placed by a Davidian attorney named Wayne Martin said there were women and children inside and to call off the raid. Ugh. And we're going to insert a 911 call here. 911, Wayne was instantly on the phone with 911, trying to get them to communicate with the people on the ground and get them to stop firing at us. gunshots and i'm thinking this is getting out of hand i'd had an eight-hour class in negotiation prior to that about two or three weeks before it i guess it was
remove their casualties, okay? As a peace officer, you want to be in control of the situation. I didn't feel like I was in control. So you've got three people down. One person you sure is dead. Are you injured, Wayne? I'm under fire. Okay, I know you're under fire, but are you hurt? Wayne, cease firing. They came in with force. They shot at people. We tried to talk to them. They wouldn't listen to reason. It was crazy. Okay, so almost six hours after the ceasefire, um, Michael Schroeder was shot to death by ATF agents, and alleged it was alleged that he fired a pistol at agents as he was attempted attempting to re-enter the compound with Woodrow Kendrick and Norman Allison. His wife claimed that he was returning from work. Yeah, so they were saying, like, he actually wasn't even involved in the whole... He was just coming home. Yeah. Yeah. Contact was eventually made with Korish and others inside the compound by the FBI, and there was actually 117 conversations between the FBI and Korish um, during the negotiations that ended up lasting 60 hours. That man liked to talk. Like, that's so annoying, though. I would be so pissed off. At least the FBI could, like, rotate people, but he talked the full 60 hours. Yeah, and he, like, he would say things, he would do things, and then he wouldn't do them. Yeah, like, that typical, say, he was just playing games. Yeah, exactly. Um, he was, they were able to secure and release 44 people, according to agency records. So, like, at some point throughout the negotiations, he was convinced to let 44 people out of the compound. Mm-hmm. At some point, Korish had been seriously injured by a gunshot. So, at some point during this issue that's going on. Mm-hmm. As the standoff continued, quote, closest male associates and he negotiated delays so that he could possibly write religious documents, which he said he needed to complete them before his surrender. <laughs> I read, too, somewhere that he was recording videos of their, like, teachings and everything. Oh so, he could show them to people if he was to be shot. Then the FBI took command, um, and they facilitated the release of 19 children, but their parents were not released. It was just the children early into the negotiations. Which good for them. Yeah. The FBI and Texas Rangers conducted interviews with the children and learned that the children had allegedly been physically and sexually abused long before the raid. That's so sad. They probably had no idea. They were probably born in to the probably con- that was They the probably compound. thought that was part of the religion. Yeah. Um, like I said, we'll talk about a little bit more about documentaries, but there's actually a section from one of the documentaries of the FBI were able to get cameras into the compound during this time Mm -hmm. and had people record things about how they were feeling and what they believed. And it is crazy to see that. Wow. Yeah. During the siege, the FBI used loud music, bright lights, bulldozers, and flashing bang grenades to attempt to get the people to come out without hurting anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, they played agonizing loud music on speakers 24-7 in order to induce sleep deprivation in members. Wow, so they yeah. were like, anything to just get them anything out. Anything to get them out safely. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell from the New Yorker wrote uh, of the operation, and this is all a quote, the FBI assembled what has been called probably the largest military force ever gathered against a civilian suspect in American history. Ten Bradley tanks, two Abram tanks, four combat engineering vehicles, 668 agents in addition to U.S. Custom, 
Customs Officers, 15 U.S. Army personnel, 13 members of the Texas National Guard, 31 Texas Rangers, 131 officers from the Texas Department of Public Safety, and 17 from the McLean County Sheriff's Office, and 18 Waco Police for a total of 899 people. That's insane. In order to try to get these people to come out of this commune safely. Yeah. That is crazy. They were, like, basically doing everything they could. 899 people? Yeah. That's crazy. With a combination, like, from all of those departments. There are so Um, many departments involved. Imagine this, like, going on. I was obviously too young to remember, but, like, imagine hearing this on the news. Yeah. Be crazy. That's terrifying. Yeah. So, now we're on to April 19th, 1993. So, like, Kelsey had started this Waco event February 28th, 1993. And now we're on to April 19th, 1993. So this whole time they're trying to to get these people out. Yeah. So the FBI's final siege of the compound using large, used large weaponry, oh my god, (laughs) (laughs) such as 50 caliber 12.7 millimeter rifles and armored combat engineering vehicles known as CEV. These measures were taken as the Branch Davidians were heavily armed. Basically, they were like, we're going to have this just in case. Yeah. And obviously, they've been going, like, they were going through the raid for that long. They need to keep their people safe. Yeah. So, the FBI, agent, FBI agents were only permitted to return incoming fire. So, like, they were to hold off on any fire until somebody was shooting at them, which right. is... Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So, government forces used tanks full of tear gas to flush out the Branch Davidians to bring the siege to a close. This was, like, the big shebang this day. They were inserted into the flimsy walls of the building, and several Branch Davidians opened fire, and the FBI increased the amount of gas being used. So, they didn't even really return fire. They were like, let's just pour more gas into here. They're gonna have to come out. Yeah. Yeah. So, around noon on that day of April 19th, three fires broke out in different parts of the building. The government maintains that the fires were not deliberately started by the Branch Davidians. So, they were they were just, like, other things happened that happened. caused this. Yeah. Uh, but some Branch Davidian survivors say that the fires were started either accidentally or deliberately by the assault. So, there's kind of contradicting theories yeah. as to what happened. The fire engulfed the building, and the wind from the day fed the fire, and the structure was burnt down in less than an hour. That is crazy. Yeah. 85 Branch Davidians in the compound when the final siege... Or 85 Branch Davidians were in the compound when the final siege began April 19th. 76 died, and I had read deferring things. Either 21 or 25, somewhere around there... Victims were children under the age of 16. That's horrible. Which is so sad because they were so innocent and all this. And, I mean, like, I feel like all of those people were victims in a way because... They were brainwashed. Yeah, they were just... Like, they thought they believed in that, you know? And especially the children, though. They were, like, born into that. And that's all they knew, really. And Yeah. So, these people died from, like, a majority of things, falling rubble, suffocating effects of the fire, or by gunshot wounds from fellow Branch Davidians. So, there's also contradiction on that with whether people were... Intentionally killing each other. Yeah, or doing it to put, 
each other out of the misery from, like, burning alive. And I read somewhere, and this, like, broke my heart, and I, I assume that this, this is alleged, but I assume that this was because they believed that they were gonna die anyway, and that they should just, you know, end it before they suffered a bad mm-hmm. death. There was a three-year-old found with stab wounds yeah. to the chest. Yeah. That's horrible. Yeah. That's sickening. <sighs> So, the FBI claims that no law enforcement officer had fired a single bullet since the initial shootout in February. Wow. Yeah. So, the death of Koresh. He did die. The FBI believes that Steve Schneider, which was Koresh's right-hand man, quote, probably realized that he was dealing with a fraud, (laughs) shot and killed Koresh, and then committed suicide with the same gun. So, that's what the FBI believes. Yeah. But another story was that Koresh died of a gunshot wound to the head during the course of the fire, and no one knows who killed him or if he killed himself. There's no one to, like, attest. Yeah. So, 82 Branch Davidians died total from the initial raid in February up to the final shebang in April. So, before we mentioned, uh, when I mentioned the... 76 or whatever it was that was just that final siege day yeah from the beginning to the end it was around 82 people the siege lasted 51 days and there was around 600 federal agents surrounding the complex on that final siege day yeah Yeah. the dallas news provided a day-to-day timeline of these 51 days and we're actually going to provide this in our resources links on facebook because if we had included it in this this thing would be so long imagine 51 days yeah of like day-by-day detail yeah we don't need that (laughs) yeah we just gave you the gist of it yeah so if you want to look further into the day-by-day breakdown take a look at our link on facebook yeah and from a 1993 texas monthly story i'm gonna read a quote This whole thing is a quote. (laughs) For 51 days, federal agents camped outside the compound, paralyzed by their own ineptitude, while this notorious liar and con man was permitted to broadcast his incoherent message to the world. The authorities must have known that it was all a sham, but Koresh had given them no choice. The feds were the hostages, the ones who were surrounded without hope. They kept assuring the public that they weren't about to be drawn into a firefight, then permitted exactly that to happen. What happened at Mount Carmel was not suicide. It was holy war, just mm-hmm. as Korish had prophesied. They gave, yeah, oh, God. It's or prophesied. Prophesied. Sorry, I read that last word. That's okay. <laughs> Wrong. Yeah, it's just, like, crazy that that's what ended up happening, and I guarantee you that, that because of what happened... Some of the believers that are still around today say, oh, like, that was the, it came true. That was the thing. Yeah, yeah, especially with the fire and, like, the apocalypse. Which, it was, like, Armageddon or which whatever. Which makes me believe that, and this is just my opinion, that the fire was started by the Davidians before everything went down. Like, by some of them. Yeah. Yeah. To just feel that belief. Prophecy and keep yeah, the, yeah alive yeah. to anybody that got out. Yeah. So, the Waco incident brought a lot of attention to a debate that, like, several issues were happening within this. Yeah. The nature of alternative religious groups, firearms, accumulation of these groups, and government use of deadly deadly force. They were basically like, these are all things that need to be addressed. How do we prevent this from happening again? Yeah, yeah. 
Some post-incident reports blame the Davidians for starting the fire, as we said, and shooting each other in consensual suicides. So, that was also a main topic of conversation. And nine Davidians actually escaped the fire and lived. Yeah. There were also more outside of it that weren't... Like, in the building. In the the building building that day, but in that actual burning building, nine lived. Yeah. So, now I'm going to move on to the government charges... There were several civil suits that were brought against the United States government, federal officials, former governor of Texas, Ann Richards, and the member of the Texas Army National Guard. A bulk of these charges were dismissed. I think that the the judge was probably like, you guys went through enough. Mm -hmm. Um, Quote, there was insufficient, insufficient as a matter of law or because the plaintiffs could advance no matter evidence in support of them. And that was an article from Wiki, or a quote from Wiki. On July 21st, 2000, a preliminary report exonerating, exonerating the government agents was issued. The report concluded that the federal agents did not set fire, direct gunfire at the complex, or improperly employ the U.S. Armed Forces. So basically they were like, they, they, they did everything, did everything the, the way they were supposed to. Yeah. yeah. He said that the Branch Davidians, including Koresh, were responsible for this tragic fire mm-hmm. fire that happened. Um, and that was the, the judge's ruling on the government, um, like, suits and charges, which... Which I'm sure there were some people that had an issue with the phrasing of that, in a way, because that it's almost blaming, like, a religious group for, for something, something, you like know? This, yeah. But, but they at did. the same time, <laughs> they were a cult, and yeah, like, everything did happen because of the way they reacted. He could have easily let them come out of the compound and nobody would have died. Yeah. I think that, kind of like that one article said, though, like, this was almost, in a way, bound to happen, because if he believed that this big fucking event was gonna happen... Something was gonna happen. Yeah, he might have been thinking already, as soon as he heard that... Yeah, he was like, this is it. This is it. This is what we've been preparing for. I have to make something happen, regardless. Yeah. Yeah. I need to be seen as the prophet, and my prophecy was right, you know what I mean? So, where are they now? Those survivors we talked about. (laughs) Um, The federal grand jury indicted 12 of the surviving Branch Davidians. Three were in the compound during the final siege, I think. There was, like, around three of them in there. No, we weren't. Oh, weren't. Sorry. Three of them weren't. So, those were the ones that were outside of the building. Yeah, so, like, there's 12. Nine of them are the nine that escaped, but then there were three three other, like, random ones. They were charged with aiding and abetting in murder of federal officers and unlawful possession and use of various firearms. Eight Branch Davidians were convicted of firearms charges, five were convicted of voluntary manslaughter, and four were acquitted of all charges. I'm probably going to say this last name wrong, but his, this person's name is David Thibodeau, and he was one of the nine that escaped the fire. He was actually inside the building. Wow. He crawled out of a hole in the side of the building. That's how he got out. And he later wrote a memoir about his time with the Branch Davidians. Wow. So I, that would be interesting to read. I feel like, too, I mean, it's sad that anyone had to die. Like, I know. Whether, like, what you believed in or not, if you were part of that cult mentality because you were brainwashed or because you were part of, like, brainwashing people... Mm-hmm. Like, no one should have died. No. All nine final siege survivors were initially convicted on some account. 
Wow. So the nine that were actually escaped from the fire. Mm-hmm. As of July 2007, all Branch Davidians had been released from prison, which was pretty recent. Paul Fada spent 13 years in prison on weapons charges and was released two years early on good, beha- good behavior. He, and this was the time of the article, so he might actually be a little bit older, but um, the article said he's now 55 and lives in San Diego where he manages his family's Hawaiian restaurant. He still believes in the Davidians' teachings as well. Wow. Yeah. Another survivor was Clive Doyle, and he's 72 years old at the time of this article. He still lives in Waco, and he has a Bible study every Saturday with another survivor named Sheila Martin. He's become the unofficial Davidian spokesperson. Eek. I know. I know. I was kind of waiting for that to happen, too. Mm-hmm. He says that they're still waiting on the return of David Koresh. They believe that, like, he didn't die <laughs> or that he's coming back. Like in Jesus? And a return, yeah. Oh this God. is a quote from Clive, who was the survivor. Quote, we, we survivors of 1993 are looking for David and all those that died, either in a shootout or in a fire. We believe that God will resurrect this special group. Mm. Okay. All right, Clive. Sorry, Clive. I mean, to each his own. You could believe in what you want, but you're right. waiting happened. a long ass time, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> the Branch Davidians scattered across the United States, so either the survivors or new um, believers that popped up. Before the fire in 1991, they bought. They actually bought part of the old Mount Carmel and reestablished the press to keep printing Hotep's original messages. Okay. Well, yeah. Hotep's message, I think, was a little better than David's. I agree. The Branch Davidians still own the, the new Mount Carmel where the fire took place. Uh-huh. But it has still not been rebuilt, and a small group still meets there regularly for a Sabbath study. Okay. I wonder if they just, like, sit in the field, you know? Kumbaya style. Yeah. In 2013, it was reported that they call themselves... <laughs> I can't with the names... Branch, the Lord of our righteousness. That's why I think this episode, I mean, I'm always tongue-tied in episodes, but this episode, I fucked up words a lot, and I think it's, it's because so there's hard. so many, like, long Weird, ones, yeah. and then we're second-guessing pronunciations, because I'm really bad with certain pronunciations, as it is, if it doesn't, if it's different from what the English language is supposed to be like. Yeah, because our language is stupid. Yeah, like, they say there's certain rules, and then... For certain words, there's not. (laughs) Stupid. So, the branch, the Lord, our righteousness, is Mm. now legally recognized as a denomination. Mm. Okay. All right. Twelve people lived in mobile homes, so I guess that's what they did. They just lived in the mobile homes that were where the fire happened. Quote, I came back here in the slaughter that I feel the Lord has anointed me and appointed me to be the leader, says Charles Pace who, a portly herbal, herbalist who lost a foot in a tractor accident. Why'd they describe him as portly? That's kind of rude. That's kind of rude. This is what the article Like, said. that's what he's known as, is a, is a portly herbalist? herbalist. Like, he... Who has a missing foot? Did he have to approve that for that's it to be like the article? That's, like, rude. Okay. So, Charles, the herbalist, said, I don't claim to be a prophet. I'm a teacher of righteousness. That's the only thing I claim. So, he was just saying that he was, like, one of the ones to keep the word and spread the word of Davidians. Okay. Um, Pace claims Korish twisted the Bible's teachings. Okay, so he's, like, teaching certain things, but he doesn't really believe in Korish's view Like, on when it. it took a turn for the, yeah. for the worst. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, all right. 
Um, other Branch Davidians led by was were led by that group that I told you earlier, Clive Doyle, who was mm-hmm. one of the survivors. Mm-hmm. They continue to believe that Korish was the prophet, and they await his resurrection along with the followers who were killed. So there's, like, random branches now that are just, like, holding on to whatever they can, I guess. And basically, Clive believes in Korish. Yeah. And Pace, the little portly herbalist, doesn't. <laughs> I feel bad for Pace. That's actually, like, really sad that they described him as that. I hope you approve that. <laughs> the best-known Davidian artifact is a clock, which is actually in the floor of the old Mount Carmel building, and it the clock's hands are set to 11 o'clock, indicating that the end of time is near. Okay. Mm-hmm. Kind of weird. Um, like we said, there's a bunch of movies, documentaries, TV shows that have made about that have been made about Waco. Literally, if you have a fire stick, just say Waco into the fire stick, and like ten will come up. Wow, that's what I did last night. <sighs> I was like, "Holy shit! Which one do I watch?" We have so many resources for this one. So many, and like we said, there's so much more to it yeah. if you want to do the day by day breakdown. But that was a lot, and uh, that was an hour ish worth of information. Uh-huh. So if you want more. You go for it and let us know. <laughs> have fun. It was a little too much cult for me after that. I was like, okay. Well, we haven't done one in a while, too, yeah. so this was a good one to dive deep into. And if you have any other cults that you want us to cover at some point, I know for a fact, as much work as it's going to be, I want to cover Scientology because it is actually terrifying I want to do Nexium really bad, and that's a lot, too. Nexium is a lot, too. Both of those are, like... Your mind will be blown. We're going to have to do, like, two or three parters for that. Yeah. Yeah. But moral of the story, David Korish was not a prophet. (laughs) As much as he wants to believe it. And if there are people out there who still believe in it, I am sorry. He was not. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's it. Yeah. I think that's about sums it up. Yeah. Um... Believe in things you want to spiritually. I'm open to so many different bits of religion. Right, and I'm a firm believer that, like, you can believe in what you want as long as you're not hurting anybody. Yeah, just don't join a fucking cult. That's the moral of the story. (laughs) Don't join a cult. Yeah. If they want to convince you to live in a compound and not socialize with the outside world and you have to have sex with one man (laughs) and share him with 24 other women, you're probably in a cult. You're probably in a cult. Yeah. Maybe we should write a book, How You Know You're in a Cult 101. <laughs> Just kidding. I would never know how to write that. But it would We'd be probably something. mispronounce a lot of words. I know. I know. Reading it. We do that at our book. At our book reads. At our book reading. <laughs> Fast forward 10 years. Yeah. We yeah, have no. lots of hopes and dreams. Oh, boy. Here at Crime Cult and Coffee. <laughs> As we currently sit in our niece's hangout room. <laughs> yeah. That's where we record our episodes. Our biggest ambition. Yeah, hen out room. H-E-N. Hen out. That's how she, that's what she says, her hen out room instead of hen out. Not anymore, though. I know, she's getting old. When she was little, she couldn't pronounce her G's. It was it's really literally cute. a little loft, and it's cold up here. <laughs> and we had to bring my heated blanket up to record. Yeah, our first ambition, since we live, we dream big, as I just mentioned. Yeah. Is to eventually have our own little office space. So we don't have to, like, take down our setup every time we're done recording. Yeah. She actually yelled at us last week for having our mic in a corner and our cute crime cults and coffee signs yeah. that 
on Instagram at KA Creations. <laughs> Shout yeah, out. Th- thank you. Made us. Yeah, she was like, um, why is this thing in my hangout room? And we're I was like, Ava. It's in a corner that you don't even freaking go in. It was so rude. <laughs> I was so taken back that she said that. I know. It's like Ava. I was like, it's fine. It's, it's our podcast. It's two signs and a microphone, and guess what? You don't even play at that desk. She ever. like rolled her eyes. She's like, oh, <laughs> She's like ugh. <laughs> All right. That is it, people. Ugh. Send us in your crazy stories because we're gonna keep doing listener stories. Yeah. Check out the day by day resource. Check out we uh, are also linking a. Um, like a little excerpt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a thing from the documentary, right? Yeah. And then a video of David reading a prophecy or whatever to, if you to wanna, his followers. If you want to look at that. You can hear him preach, basically, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> All right. Until next week, you crime cults and coffee people. Yeah, we're still trying to figure out. What to call Cute you? Cute little name for you. Give Let us, us know suggestions. if you have a name for you guys that listen. You deserve it. <laughs> Bye. Bye. regarding this case and our resources follow us at crime cults and coffee on instagram and facebook